Welcome back to the Plenary Session Podcast. If you're joining us, you're going to want to see this on video. I'm joined by Professor Carl Hennigan and Dr. Tom Jefferson. These are two of the premier evidence-based medicine researchers in the world. Uh, gentlemen, it's great to see you both. Thanks for coming. Likewise. Nice hey. And Carl, I'm, nice to see you, I imagine you're phoning in from UK, where you're a professor at Oxford. Yeah, I'm phoning you in from Oxford. I'm in my house in the place where I do most of my work. And yeah, it's a bit cold at the moment. It's a bit rainy, but yeah, it's uh, plenty of work going on here. Wonderful. And Tom, you're joining us from Rome, where you've been a clinical epidemiologist, a practicing physician, and you have done many Cochrane reviews for 20 plus years. Yes, 17. I'm co-author of 17 Cochrane reviews of one kind or another. Yes, that's right. All right, gentlemen, thanks for doing this. Let's get into this. I hope to cover a lot of topics, including masking, randomized control trials, meta-analysis, how it's being interpreted in the press. Maybe we'll get to lockdown and science itself and the silence, I think, of many academics and evidence-based medicine. But let me start by asking you, Tom, uh, if you might tell the listeners, when did you get involved in Cochrane's review of physical interventions to slow the spread of respiratory viruses? Um, and how many protocols or how many iterations of that review have you done over the last 20 years? The late and lamented Chris Delmar and I wrote the original protocol in 2006. And the current updates, uh, which is 2023, is the fifth update of the review. Five updates over these 20 years. And when you wrote the protocol, it was you joined in 2006. Is that right, Tom? That particular one, yes. The very, very first Cochrane protocol I wrote was 1997, which is amantadine and remantadine for influenza. I see. You've been interested in respiratory viruses for a quarter century, uh, but this particular protocol you joined. And is it fair to say we didn't know about COVID-19 back then. I think it's fair to say you didn't know that was coming. You've been long uh, investigating this topic long before COVID-19. Oh, um, you see, I had the, the, the great privilege of working with David Tyrrell, who, is, who was the last uh, um, director of the Common Cold Unit, the MRC Common Cold Unit. He was the guy who actually identified uh, um, the first coronavirus. Uh, and uh, he, there's nothing, there's nothing extraordinary about new uh, respiratory viruses appearing the whole time. Um, and, and indeed, we there is a huge amount of them, a huge number of them, and we only probably know very, very few. Uh, we've identified very few. For instance, there's hundreds of stereotypes of rhinovirus. But it's uh, identifying any more ser- serotypes is practically useless because it doesn't really tell you much. Mm. We don't have a, um, a, a drug or a vaccine against rhino. Um, so it, it, it's, 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 it's a universe. Um, and one of the first things that, uh, that, that he told me about is um, his rule of three. But we can, we can go back to that in later on. Okay. So I had some pretty good, pretty good teachers, although I'm not a very good student. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. You've done a lot of important work. And I think listeners should know that uh, both Tom and Carl have done work on Tamiflu, uh, which was sold to governments for tens of billions of dollars, stockpiled as uh, the critical medicine we need for an influenza pandemic. But then in a meta-analysis that went through the uh, 
the clinical study reports of the original trial publications, was found to basically be like Tylenol. You shaved a day of symptoms off the end, but the first day you paid for it with more nausea. Is that right, Tom? Uh, Carl, what's that on the on the wall behind you? Sorry, can you <laughs> yeah. yeah, Vinia, you said something like their clinical study reports. What does that mean? We in two thousand and nine, um, what happened is we was working on the children's review of Tamiflu, and Tom was working on the adults. And it's a really interesting story: the realization that about sixty percent of all the evidence was never published in full. Mm. In fact, the largest ever single trial was published as an abstract, three hundred words long. And the person who supposedly presented the abstract wasn't even at the conference, apparently. But behind me on the wall is a picture there, just about there, yep. of six CDs of uh, old cell Tamiflu, which is Tamiflu, which it took <laughs> us about three years to get access to the data. And then all of a sudden, it was delivered through the post, and they went, here's the data. And we went from 300-word abstracts, for instance, to 9,000 pages of detailed information on a single trial and that's where we get a sort of new type of review which was to say we're going to only look at clinical study reports when it comes to drugs or vaccines and that journal publications are just a summary and because they miss out so much detail suffer from reporting bias they're actually not much use in assessing drugs and vaccines mm -hmm. and hey ho we see the same problem now in the current pandemic certain drugs certain vaccines people are going can we have all the evidence to make an informed decision yeah that's absolutely correct and i think um people should go back and revisit these publications i believe it was british medical journal 2011 was that roughly the time the year came out well there were two things. 2012 yeah. 2014 three um, three iterations of the review okay yeah i have this lots of papers but go on carl sorry yeah, so so there is a bit of a learning. 209 was journal publication. What happened is we got a bit of the data, what were called module 1s, which is sort of the front end of a clinical study report. And that was a realisation from us that actually it's a bit like the old iceberg, they call it, and the FDA do this, don't they? There's the bit you see above the water, but like below the water is all this information stored in the cabinet. And there are actually module two, three, four, five, which give individual patient data listing and the harms. And all of that went into the 2014 update is when we were much clearer about the limitations of these drugs. You say half a day, maybe four quarters of a day of reduction in symptoms versus, oh, we started to find all of these serious adverse events and complications that weren't known about before. I see. Yes, and I think it's an important chapter of medical history. It's a legendary chapter. And I think the lesson is, if one applied the same scrutiny for every medical product, who knows where we would be? And I think that's what's never been done since then and ought to be done. Tom, you want to say something? We're, we're, yeah, we're serializing the story uh, on Trusty Evidence, on Substack Trusty On your Substack, yep. Yes, on Trust, Trusty Evidence is called the Substack uh, for anybody who's interested. We are, we've got to December 2009, which after six or seven episodes, which is only really the start. And it was this, this discovery, um, this, 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 this realization that behind any publication, uh, there was an, a massive iceberg of unseen data of incredibly uh, fine detail, um, some of it trivial, but some of it very important. And if I can just take take on, a lot of people said, 
you've never written anything about uh, covid vaccines why 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 don't you why don't you write something about covid vaccines that's because i haven't had the time we haven't had the time we haven't got the resources to go through the, the, the clinical study reports and, and they're I'm, not all they're not all available I, they're not all available we we've we've successfully campaigned for some of them to be available i will not be drawn on publications which are probably ghost written and are essentially uh, adverts so i what what i would start from is understanding the mechanisms and the proposed mechanism of action of each of these vaccines. I cannot get, uh, I haven't got the time to go through it if I have even had the data. So I keep my mouth shut. Well, that's the mark of a good scientist, but that's not going to get you a New York Times columnist position. So, you know, let's start with, let's start with this. I, I, I want to start with I want to start with this. This is the Cochrane 2023 update of physical interventions to interrupt the spread of respiratory viruses uh, by Jefferson and colleagues. Um, there are many parts to this. I think people focus uh, so much on the masking, but you look at everything from hand hygiene uh, to uh, you know cleaning surfaces, etc. Let's just read this one paragraph. When it comes to medical or surgical masks compared to no masks, here we're looking both in medical settings and the community, we included 12 trials, 10 cluster RCTs, comparing medical surgical masks to no masks to prevent the spread of viral respiratory illness illnesses, two in healthcare workers, 10 in the community. Wearing masks in the community probably makes little to no difference in the outcome of influenza-like illness or COVID-like illness compared to not wearing masks. The um, confidence interval, the point estimate is 0.95, pretty close to null. The confidence interval is 0.84 to 1.09. That's with nine trials and 200K participants, and it's moderate certainty. Yep. Wearing masks in the community probably makes little to no difference to the outcome of laboratory-confirmed influenza or SARS-CoV-2 compared to not wearing masks. The relative risk is essentially one. Confidence interval 0.72 to 1.42, six trials, 14,000 people, moderate certainty. Harms were rarely measured and poorly reported. And I think... When I was at, when I first looked into masks in March of 2020, and I had never looked into it, I had never had an interest in the topic, after reading the available randomized control trials, that was very quickly the conclusion I came to. So, and that's the conclusion you came to in your 2020 report, which was delayed by eight months. Um, it's pretty much the only conclusion one would come to if one evaluates the randomized control trials. Is that fair to say, Tom? Uh, yes, uh, there is no evidence that uh, these uh, interventions make much difference. Um, but one of the things that the main, one of my problems is that the the, the uh, Cochrane Review, which is short, is called A122 because the title is just too long, Physical Interventions to Interrupt or Delay the Spread of Respiratory Viruses. A122 is not just about masks. It's about a package of measures like hand washing, distancing, um, uh, quarantining, and uh, general barriers. Um, and these have not been studied in sufficient detail and in fairness, because the thing about respiratory viruses is that they come and go. They, uh, they go up, they go down, the circulation's up, the circulation's down, every now and again, we get, we get a new agent newly identified agents not new necessarily new newly identified um and people just focus on masks and they forget all the rest of it because there is some good news in 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 the review which is that hand washing, yeah for instance does decrease uh, uh the risk of influenza-like illness <clears throat> infection 
And almost certainly of COVID-19 infection and almost certainly of all other uh, respiratory viruses. Whether it's the, the, the friction or the, the soap or the water, it doesn't matter. It appears to be beneficial. Now, instead of building on that, mm-hmm. we're just focusing on just one intervention. And that's very, very narrow. That's very um, narrow, yeah. Yes. And, and, and but part, also to... because hand washing, I cannot see that you just hand washed. And I don't know you're voting for Joe Biden because, you know, I mean, it's not a visible symbol where masks are a visible symbol and have become paired with political preference. But let me push on this a little bit. So then you said on on right now what you said, I think, publicly at the time, which is our review shows there is simply no evidence based on the standard of evidence used by Cochrane that masks work to that. There was an unprecedented pushback. Many commenters said that that confidence interval is broad, goes from 0.72 to 1.4. And that confidence interval is compatible with some values that might suggest a modest benefit. So here's what I did. I pulled all these Cochrane reviews. We're going to be publishing this in the next few days. But these are just many, many reviews. And actually, I have a bigger, a new figure that's even bigger than this. This was the first iteration. Um, many, many reviews that were similar to yours in the sense that the overall point estimate was null and they have a confidence interval. I've highlighted yours in blue, but there are other ones where the confidence interval is even wider. There are ones where the confidence interval, look at 11, you know, it's really, if anything, you know, it's much more favorable uh, than your confidence interval, you know, allowing for that comparison. I pulled all of the conclusions from Cochrane. Exercise interventions did not affect the risks of falls. Compared to no uh, remote ischemic preconditioning probably leads to little or no difference in myocardial infarction. Wearing masks in the community probably makes little to no difference. The point I want to make to you is that if you look at all the Cochrane reports, you look at your interpretation of the confidence interval, one would find that you are exactly the same as everybody else, that you are in line with falls and this and masking and weird things in cardiology, things I've never even heard of. You're in line with everybody. What's not in line are the people who say for this one Cochrane review, it should have said, it's possible that masks work. We just need more studies. And of course, we all believe they were. So to me, the unprecedented thing is what the uh, the editor-in-chief of Cochrane did. Um, any thoughts on that, Tom? Then I'll give it to Carl. Uh, no, no. First of all, um, more studies are needed. But some of them who um, actually said what you said uh, at physically obstructed trials uh, in the last three years, mask trials. They tried to defund the trials. They wrote to um, to ethics committees questioning the, the equipoise, very much like Dr. Valenska at uh, CDC questioning uh, equipoise and even harassed, personally harassed the authors of these trials. And this is now on in public record. It wasn't now. It, now it is. So it, it, there's something there's something about masks which um, really quite pleases me because nobody could give a damn about this review in 2017, 2009, 2010, 2011, and even partly 2020. And all of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden, everybody's interested in it. And it's got an old metric of 22,000, which is the <laughs> highest metric of any Cochrane review ever. <laughs> well, you all know, of all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> all of a sudden. I, 
I'm going to give it to Carl, but I just want to reiterate the point, which is that uh, the way the review ultimately concluded is consistent with how every other Cochrane review concludes with that kind of point estimate conference. It's There's nothing different. And what you said, there's simply no evidence it works, is exactly what anybody would say about ivermectin or vitamin D or bloodletting or homeopathy if that was the conference interval of the randomized trials. Carl, what are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, look, I've got sort of three points, and feel free to interject because I think they're all yeah. very important points in this. The first is, is it okay to say something doesn't work? which seems to be contentious. Second is your your confidence interval and the issue of a clinically important difference. Yeah. And then the third issue is it depends on the question. So let, let's, let's start with, let's say, does it not work? So I'm a physician, I work as a GP, you guys work as clinicians. The key is if somebody comes to talk to you about a new drug or a new treatment, the first question they ask is, is it effective? And the, the answer is gonna be in this situation, no. And therefore, they're going to go to you, doctor. Hey, doctor. So it's not ineffective. It's not effective. It must be ineffective. And if you're going to go, mm, well, hold on a minute. The evidence is inconclusive. You're going to get into a bit of a bind because at that point, they're going to say, so does it mean it's OK if I take that treatment then? You go, no. So he's going to go, well, doctor, that means it doesn't work then. Mm, maybe not. But you're going to end up in this situation, which is a bit ridiculous. The fact is, something may be shown to work in the future or not. What matters is that decision right in front of you right now with this evidence to hand. And what also matters is, is this an important difference that will make a difference to you? And if the answer is no, then it is ineffective. It doesn't work. But I think from a methodological people, people have very great difficulty in saying that because they're not involved in actual discussions about decisions. So we've got to get this out on the table. Either something is effective or it isn't effective. There is no in-between bit where I can go to, oh, keep taking that treatment because it may be shown to work in the future. At that moment, I'll say, look, the evidence is doesn't support it. Therefore, I am okay to say at this moment in time, it doesn't work. It is not effective. But you could still simultaneously be testing it in randomized studies elsewhere. Right, of course. Correct. And the idea is at that moment, what you do is you say, well, but there is ongoing research. If that research shows it to be effective in the future, we will come back to you and change our viewpoint. Therefore, this is the important aspect. Why has there been a complete lack of will to address this issue? In the major countries in the world, like the US and the UK, there's not been a single high quality trial. There's been a lack of will. And that's because people have been certain double down on very poor quality evidence that these things work, that shuts off the need for a development of an evidence base. And we've ended up with really poor quality research that we've just shown today. The UK looked at 23 of these trials, observational studies should have never made it into a review. They're so poor, they just do not even reach a sort of minimal bar for evidence that you would use. So that's my first point. I think yes, the methodologists, the editors have to get their head around. What does it feel like to make a decision? It is completely okay to say something's effective or ineffective, or it doesn't work at this moment in time. But come back to your second point. You said this confidence interval, yeah. 0.72 to 1.4. What's important, interesting is you should set out with a study a clinically important difference. That's the sort of difference that will make a difference to your outcome. Now, when we look at vaccines, it's a 50% reduction. If you don't meet that bar, you don't get approval. So the question is, what would you want it to be with every time you step out the door, 
you have the potential to reduce your risk of infection. So if it's 2% every time I go out and I reduce it by half, it comes down to 1%. That's a clinically important difference. That range of confidence interval shows you that you're not going to meet that. Right. Now, might you meet a very, very small effect like 1%, yeah? Or 5%. Well, yeah, you can go from 2% to 1.9. But because you're going to go out the door multiple times, it's not going to give you a clinically important difference. Over time, right. Or, this is an argument about should you continue research that's futile because you may find an a very small difference. Well, the answer is yes, but will it be clinically important? No. And so that's the important aspect about the confidence interval. That's absolutely true. And then let me just draw one distinction, which is that one might argue that if you're in the, the week before the vaccine is available, you're 80 years old, even very marginal differences for 100,000 people might make a difference. But once a vaccine is broadly available and we're two years later, it's all a wash. You're going to, you know what I mean? What's the point? So Thoughts I think this is, yeah. the, this is the key third issue is it depends now on the question. And I okay. have, this is, so there are different questions. I, as an individual, if I go out the door, can I reduce my risk? Well, That's I would like to answer to that. And particularly if you're high risk, you would want to know that. So, for instance, if I'm a cancer patient on immunosuppression, I would want to know that. And if it does reduce my risk, I might go out the door. But if it doesn't, I might stay in. Mm -hmm. So key people, high risk, we need to know. Also in certain settings like hospitals. But second, the second question is, if we have a population-based intervention, does it make a difference? And then third, if we have mandates, does it make a difference? Right. And actually, they're very different questions. Right. I think we can answer the third and say, actually, from an observational experiment, because we introduced them in the UK in July 2020, the outcome was to prevent lockdowns. In fact, we went into lockdown. So a mandate didn't meet its required outcome on a population level assessment. Therefore, that failed, mandates failed. You can't do a randomized trial of mandates. I mean, you'd have what would we do? It'd be too large a cost. But you could do the population and individual trials. That's in easy. Yeah. Settings. Yeah. Maybe mandates you could, but they would be cluster county level, and they'll be bleed over at this at the yeah, mark yeah, at the yeah, seams. But yeah. but let me just come, uh, Tom. You want to say something, and then I'll push on the next point. Go on. Yeah. One of the aspects has been completely forgotten, and certainly in the UK, to say review completely wrong, is the aspect of harms. Not just the harms of masks, but harms of all physical interventions. They all have harms, physical or mental. Okay, They carry a, a, a burden of harms. It may be acceptable, may not be acceptable if you had a clear risk-benefit situation. Now, we come to the real point about harms. One of the criticisms of the trials that we use and the Cochrane review is that they have low compliance. Obviously, specifically, they were talking about masks. Well, why do you think they had low compliance? Because people don't like to why wear them. On, yeah, they're uncomfortable. Because yeah. people don't like to wear them. Because pe people have got, they have, they have breathing difficulties because they cannot express what you and I and Carl are expressing at the moment, which is facial emotion. This is why the 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 evidence base is so poor because there aren't very many good studies on on the effects of these interventions in different settings in different populations um Carl and i did a uh, together with our group we did a, a, a review of transmission uh, sars-cov-2 transmission um immune suppressed 
usually transplantee uh, recipients or people who are waiting for transplants. And the disease uh, and the viral burden and how the viral burden behaves is completely different from uh, a, a two-year-old or a three-year-old child. Okay, so these interventions, if you really did want to test them fairly, you would have to test them on all, on, on the, all the large populations. And we had the chance of doing that. My final point, sorry, on this no, 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 yeah. is in, in rich countries, you have departments with directors of pandemic preparedness who draw huge salaries, okay? Well, if they're not organizing trials, if they're not finding out what the interventions uh, are uh, that work or what their risk benefit uh, profile are doing, what are they doing? Are they just stockpiling antivirals? Are they pushing out pieces of paper? This is what we don't understand. They're failing. Carl, you had a thought, and then I want to tell a little bit of- Yeah, look, I think uh, this is a big issue of equipoise. Yeah. What we see is with and this is happens with commercial in, influence, but actually this ideology and people use mechanisms to say there's no equipoise. When we start out and we look at thing, interventions like mass, they work. What there's no there's no harm. They're clearly beneficial. So any evidence will just prove what we know already. And actually, this is a fallacy that's occurred for decades, is this idea that actually there is an equipoise when it comes to interventions. You know, people use this parachute effect and we can go there, but that's a different issue. What happens here is there is equipoise when you start to trial all of these interventions. There's a net benefit to harm that you need to understand. And once you bring yourself to that middle line, you look at the need for evidence radically different. And what Tom's saying is all of our directors and all of these people somehow started in March 2020, February, March, with a position of equipoise saying, well, we don't think they work, you don't need them. And within about eight weeks, something flipped to them all saying now they work. Yet the evidence base didn't change apart from a load of really poor quality observational work and said, we now say they don't, they lack equipoise, they definitely work. The mechanisms support them. Therefore, we don't need an evidence base anymore. We just need to get on with it. That is a seriously interesting, critical issue for us to look at and think, how did that occur? But it's happened before in medicine, and it will continue to happen. Let's talk about that's that. Why that's, 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 why, that's what I wanted to take it to, and I think you're spot on. One, even the proponents cannot believe masks or parachutes because uh, they say things like Dan Mask was underpowered. Well, if Dan Mask is underpowered, it's no parachute because it's excluded, you know, 99.999% effect sizes. Um, let's talk about that, those series of events. I think um, in the United States, it was best uh, denoted by Anthony Fauci with two 60 Minutes appearances. In the first appearance in 60 Minutes in early March, uh, he was asked, should people wear community masks? And he says, ah, oh, you know, we don't think they help. You may, we don't know, maybe you touch your face more. There's some countervailing um, Peltzman compensatory effect that negates the benefit. He probably was citing the body of randomized trials that existed to date in your prior Cochrane reviews. And so he's like, you know, we don't think you should do it. <laughs> Eight weeks later, he was of the tune that, yes, you ought to do it. Not only ought you do it, you ought to cut your T-shirt and put a cloth mask on. So what happened in those eight weeks? And this is where uh, 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 Dr. Tufeki plays a role, among others. There was a huge movement in the United States uh, among people who do different types of science. I mean, 
computer scientists, sociologists, people who, uh, physicists, people who rely on mechanistic science. So, you know, people in love with mechanistic science, that's one group of people. And they were thinking about the properties of filtration, et cetera. The aerosol scientists, they love mechanism too. They're there too. Um, there are people who are love in love with retrospective observational studies. I mean, I think that that's a group of people there too. And then everyone is afraid and you know, nothing is being offered. And so then there's the fear component. Um, I wonder in these political calculuses that even though people were asked to lock down, you know, we didn't lock down the slaughterhouses and we didn't lock down the essential workers and, you know, the policymakers need something to offer them so they don't feel so they can keep going to work and slaughtering those chickens so I can eat chicken. Um, I wonder if that was part of it. But as you rightly point out, in eight weeks, the pendulum swung from it doesn't work to it definitely works and we're going to run zero randomized trials in high income nations with the exception of Dan Mask, that sure. pendulum swung so abruptly. And, in the, and you talk about harms. In the United States, we masked down to two, year, two years old. We were masking, mandatory in daycares where I, right around here. You know, so you're talking about harms and zealotry. Um, and then, it, and then, the, then the final coup de grace was Donald Trump didn't wear one in our country. And if, if most of us don't like him, so if we don't like him and he doesn't wear one, then we know it's got to be good. Like that's, the, you know, that's how our operating system works. So... Thoughts on this series of this narrative as to how that? Yeah, go ahead. Go back. uh, Can I just go back a a few years to 1932? Okay. Uh, Yes. When you were alive, you were alive then when he joined. I was. was. That was when he joined Cochrane. Yeah. (laughs) That's 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 when I retired. (laughs) Thanks, guys. (laughs) Okay. In 1932, a fellow named Richard Show, who's an American. He was a uh, servant of uh, the public health service. He identified the first influenza virus, which wasn't a human. It was a swine influenza virus. 1933, Smith, Laidlaw and Andrews identified the first human influenza influenza virus. In fact, from nasal washouts from uh, Christopher Andrews is cold. Since then, we have had a steady increase in our knowledge, understanding of respiratory viruses, their variety, and uh, this body of evidence, which is huge, and which we have tried to review and incorporate in our our, uh, work, has just been completely ignored. So saying things like zero tolerance uh, I, I think uh, every influenza virus, every virus from here to where you are, Vina, I was laughing the heads off. Um, just simply nonsense, pure nonsense, uh, uttered by people who do not know what they're talking about. And this is the, the prevalent paradigm. Uh, the, the first, the first person who comes up is an artificial intelligence expert. Uh, goes and and, and uh, lobbies WHO or CDC. Ah, you got a mask. You got a mask. You got a mask. And the backbone of the politicians, uh, which is certainly not Churchillian in its uh, in, 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 in its in its nature, shows they caved in. They just caved in. Now, who was behind? If there was anybody behind this this uh, this lobbying. I don't know, and I, I'm I'm not a great uh, plot theorist, uh, but it, it's a fact. But maybe that, it was just uh, it was just fear. These people are just scared, and they don't know any better, and so they lobby. 
But, but can I? Can yes, I go ahead, Tom. Or J- Carl, because there was, there was a, sorry, just I just finished this. An amazing yeah. revelation in come in late 2020 that viruses mutate. This is amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, what a discovery! It's just <laughs> incredible. And coronaviruses mutate. Had they read the work of the MRC Common Cold Unit, they would have known that they mutate with one pass from a, from a human being. Mm-hmm. So it was complete ignorance. Yeah. Oh, Carl, you want to say something? Oh, so yeah, we had a very similar situation in the UK to what you had in the America in America. So there's a very good timeline called this smilefree.org timeline, which is very good. It details all what people have said. So on the 23rd of April 2020, the UK Chief Scientist Officer, Patrick Valance, tells Telefied Briefing, the evidence on masks has always been quite weak, quite variable. There's no real trials on it. A day later, Health Secretary Matt Hancock tells the radio, the evidence for the use of masks by the general public, especially outdoors, is extremely weak. So you have it there. You have all these people putting it in, in front of you. But but what's happened here is, 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 is we've failed. So when I talk about EBM, the approach is to provide the evidence to inform the decision. And that's an important aspect. And we've worked really hard in medicine to get to this shared decision making. But in this policy and in this pandemic, what we've done is go back to, actually, we're going to tell you the decision and then we're going to fit the evidence to suit it. And we've gone away from, it's almost like we've gone back to a doctor-centric model. We've gone to a policy-centric model. If we're going to tell you what to do, oh, and now let's find some evidence. We should have been honest and carried on and said, here's the evidence. It's weak. We're going to work to reduce the uncertainties and try and develop a high-quality evidence base. Why that didn't occur is a mystery. But the problem here is I don't think people would like the answer when they start to do the high-quality trials. And therefore, yes. a lot of people will have to sit there and go, yes, we got this really wrong. And the key lesson here is somehow we've got to get to this NPI situation where we treat them like drugs, where we go, they're only going to be they're like a regulatory pathway where they either get a stamp of approval or they sat on the shelf and go, yeah, you can do it, but please don't tell us they've got high quality evidence. Individually, you can make any old decision you want. But, but Carl, the industry is trying to do the opposite. They want drugs to be subject to the regulatory pathways of masks, which means no testing. Let's <laughs> yeah, just have yeah, it, yeah. right? They're going, but you're absolutely right. And, you know, um, Tracy Beth Hogg and I wrote an editorial where we argued that NPI, how many randomized trials do we have? Nearly none. And how many for ivermectin, vitamin D, tocilizumab? So many. There's no mm-hmm. fundamental or philosophical difference. We need them for both. Um, yeah. And I think... I, the irony is that one of our great proponents of masking, Anthony Fauci, who I respect, um, he was both the proponent and the guy who controls a $6 billion budget that could be used for randomized trials. So you can't tell me he wasn't positioned to do the study. He could have done the study. Rochelle Walensky, she said she didn't have equipoise. That's, I think, untrue. Go ahead. Carl so, in, oh, yeah. so there are two areas where this really matters. I don't think the community, I don't, look, there are two areas, care yes. homes. Yes. Number one in care homes, we said there's about in the first wave, and it's the same in the US, pretty much everywhere, about a third of the deaths occurred in care homes. So you really would want to understand in those areas what mm-hmm. makes a difference to transmission. You should be all over it. You've got very defined clusters where you should be saying, we need a suite of evidence to start to understand what can help in these settings. Number two is one of the things I think we've learned throughout this pandemic is the huge impact of hospital acquired infections. At one point, 
40% of people in hospital were getting this infection in hospital settings. So you go in there with something else, you're really vulnerable, you've had a stroke, you've had a heart attack, and basically you're going to get this infection. So whatever we tried failed. And it wasn't a lack of trying to wear masks and so forth, it just didn't deliver. And there's been recent evidence which we've looked at in our transmission reviews to show this stuff is everywhere. It's on the drug car, it's on people's phones, it's on the stethoscopes, and somehow we failed to eradicate it. So once you go in the hospital, you're in a deep trouble, particularly because you've got high viral load, people with symptoms, and we need people like Fauci to go, we are going to put a whole suite of this money into trying to investigate what to do differently. In a multi-arm randomized control trial of hospitals. Yeah. Many, many arms trying many strategies. Tom, you want to yeah. say something? Yeah. Yeah, uh, just uh, in in this maelstrom of um, noise around mouth, two of the most important trials in the review have completely gone unremarked. Um, one of them is by a, a first author, Ipfelt, in a um, uh, in, in a kiddie, um, kindergarten in Denmark, where there had two sites and they swabbed just about anything that lived and didn't live. Uh, they took swabs and, and the whole place was absolutely awash with just about any respiratory uh, virus that you can think of. But they were there, but they were not active. Okay. And this takes us back to one of the, again, to my point about throwing out the 100 years worth of work. We don't know why these viruses uh, are activated or if they are circulating, are circulating and they're passed from person to person. What we know is very little, okay, about, about those part of viruses. And with six, uh, do you say six billion US? Well, we could do some damage with six billion US. We can get, probably get some, some real answers on this. Because I tell you what, this, uh, these, these kindergartens, were not hit by any of these uh, respiratory viruses until one of them uh, had antiseptic measures uh, applied. And that somehow activated, and they had an epidemic of ILI, of influenza-like illness. Explain that to me, because, I, because, I, I, because I, I can't explain it, but I want to explain it because I'm a scientist. I don't really give a damn if this leads me to uh, saying that months are the way forward or we should cover everything on, on antiseptic or we should not use antiseptics because I don't have a specific viewpoint. I don't, I don't see things. I don't want to reach anything. I just want to understand the laws of nature. Right? So it's pure science. Well, you're uh, a I scientist. You're that's called an endangered species yeah. these days. We'll come to that. But I just want to I just want to show yeah. this one second. Uh, this is, of course, Tufeki in the New York Times. Here's the here's why the science is clear that masks work. Masks they do work. Apparently, this is May, March tenth, twenty twenty three. And this is the part that really uh, really bothered me. Uh, right here. The review examined whether they okay. The wording is open to misinterpretation. Soros. Weiser said that one of the lead authors of the review even more seriously misinterpreted the finding by saying in an interview that it proved, quote, there is just no evidence that they make any difference, end quote, which is a statement that is true. In fact, she says, quote, the statement is not an accurate representation of what the review found, which is false. So I guess what am I to think when you're getting that kind of undermining from the leadership of Cochrane? This is the second time that they've undermined the review. 2020, they wrote a scandalous editorial to go with the review, which had been delayed. 
the scandalous editorial, um, which got an alt metric of four, which made me laugh because uh, <laughs> probably I was the only person who read it. Uh, four times. The, yeah. editorial, the editorial said, look, you shouldn't wait for randomized control trials. You should, in an emergency, you should act on any old evidence that you can, uh, you can find. This is the things where important people in Cochrane or office holders in Cochrane trusted evidence. What on models? Because they produce some rapid reviews based on on with included studies, which include some modern mathematical models and non non comparative studies. And then they did this uh, editor in chief that made this uh, this this, this um, statement that you you read out. Now. Uh, as far as misinterpretation is concerned, if I had a pound, a British pound, or a US buck, for every time one of my reviews or one of my pieces being misinterpreted and misquoted, I'd be at the Bahamas. I wouldn't be here, <laughs> not even in Rome. <laughs> I'd be in the Caribbean, okay? Misinterpretation and misquoting and distortion is uh, the name of the game these days, unfortunately. They, they use whatever they, they can to buttress their arguments. So that's a nonsense argument. And incidentally, as of today, so over a month from that statement, uh, she has not really made contact with us other than once. Uh, say that, you know, that she hasn't explained why and what happened uh, and how she got hold of a New York Times reporter, which has got a long history of um of activism um, yes i mean the reporter is just trying to save face for the fact that she was one of the people who pushed the toddlers into masking in the u.s she says she didn't but when you g repeatedly state that we ought to wear masks and even children spread the virus even when they're very young you know what do you expect will happen um i wonder and, if it might be helpful and, and, and flip-flopped and flip-flopped because yeah. She, yeah i wonder if it might be helpful for maybe carl and tom to explain you know, the people who still believe, they do cite these observational studies. Why are these 23 studies, you have a really great essay out today in uh, Trust the Evidence, the Substack, and the British government has picked the 23 best studies, but there's more than 23. There may be a thousand retrospective observational, if we include case reports uh, of that uh, teacher in Marin County, no, the hairdresser in Marin County, which is the CDC, in, in the CDC publication, an anecdote of a hairdresser, you know, level one evidence here in the U.S., um, what what are we to why are these level why are these reports not good evidence carl well look yeah what we're talking about is the 23 studies that were available up to 2021 to make the decision there and then mm -hmm. and this is what the we have the uk hsa they're the health security agency they do the evidence <laughs> reviews that inform the government they replace the public health england who were thrown under the bus because they said apparently they don't know what they're doing and we're going to replace it with the uk hsa are going to keep us secure well it's a bit worrying what these people do but first is 23 studies so what we do is what happens in the world now is people just look at the study title look at the bottom line and then reproduce that they never actually go under the bonnet and say well what's on the engine here and so the first lesson of ebm is is that actually you have to read this stuff 
And that's all we do, actually. We're nerdy enough to, like yourself, to go under the bonnet and say, what does it say? Well, immediately, of the 23, 12 of them go in the bin because they're cross-sectional studies. They tell you how many people are wearing masks, why they were wearing masks, where the children and adults were. They can tell you what you had for breakfast, what you had for dinner, but they can't tell you where the mask worked. So they should go in the bin immediately. But they were there, I bolster the numbers we've got 23 studies but actually if we only had 11 might not look so good but then of the 11 you can pick out we're not going to talk about the fact they had no protocols no blinding all the usual stuff that we'd expect there are just some serious flaws in some of this stuff so for instance some of the studies weren't representative. You went to a place like Manawis in Brazil, where it's very poor. They had certain very high outbreaks. And what did you? You had a load of educated, rich university people coming forward because it was a convenient sample. Mm. And they provided you with the evidence. We wore masks. We didn't have an infection, but you didn't actually go to the population that mattered. Second is maybe mm. one of the most egregious examples is what we call the cherry pick. And this is from data from the ONS, the Office for National Statistics is they every two weeks were producing infection survey data and were asking people whether you wore masks or not. And out of the 12 two-week period, six showed that masks reduced your risk of infection and six showed that they increased your risk of infection. And if we did a random effect, we could show you that actually was a non-significant, about an 8% reduction, but a non-significant. But what did ONS do? They just picked the last two weeks and put that out there and said, oh, look, here you get an increase a reduction in, in infections if you wear a mask and the UKHSA only took that two weeks so they did a significant cherry pick of the data the third one which oh, I think really? is even more egregious is the fact that they included a study from a predatory journal and predatory journals we know have huge issues because they don't have peer review they don't have editorial controls and nature wrote a whole piece about it saying you should be really concerned about anything that appears in these number of journals about 43 of them they were really worried about and they had one of them so you don't even get to this threshold of low quality evidence if if we'd have been doing this review we would have ended up with zero studies going into our review to saying that's what you've got to inform your decision you can still make a political decision but actually there isn't the evidence there to help you make an informed decision tom uh you know, you, you may want to help us because there's a mystery study in all this. If you go through the uh, the website, there's a mystery study. We call it a mystery study because we don't know what the hell it is. Uh, it's got weird stuff, like uh, weird for, for SARS-CoV-2, like measuring lipid levels. And then all of a sudden, somewhere in there, it's got uh, the word mask. Uh, so it was included. Um it, it, The stuff is beyond bizarre. The level of uh, these... Uh, but let me just reiterate, none of them had a protocol, so uh, you don't know whether the analysis was pre-planned. Um, none of them had a researcher blinding, so they could have been uh, what they will. They were aware of who was exposed and who was unexposed, and none of them had a clear definition of COVID-19. Some of them didn't even report what test was used. Whether can it I, was a PCR, yeah. viral culture, whatever. Or self-report. Carl? So, yeah, I, this is something oh, yeah. which is a bit, oh, no. bit of an exclusive. Tom and I talked about this on 
uh, GB News this morning about the review. But what happened after that is we've got a response from the Deputy Director of UK HSA Review. Now, this is about N95 masks because there was a review this week came out. Yeah. The, the, the deputy director said the covenant evidence on face coverings suggests that all types of face coverings are to varying extents effective in reducing transmission of respiratory viruses in both healthcare and community settings. N95 respirators are likely to be the most effective. However, two days ago, the UK HSA did a review. And in that review, the purpose of the rapid review was to identify and assess the available evidence for the effectiveness of N95s. And here's what they said. The review did not identify any studies for inclusion and so could provide no evidence to answer the research question. So we've got this difference of what somebody is saying who's a deputy director and what the evidence has actually just reported for him, which is a bit like what's happening in the Cochrane situation, is something's happened where people have it comes back to this equipoise they've got an ideological view and therefore they can't look at the evidence from a sort of critical way they've lost sight of the null hypothesis and they just have this alternative hypothesis in their mindset and it's skewing everything that's happening we have to come from a position of the null hypothesis and disprove that null hypothesis. And once it does, we'll then say there's evidence of something we should be doing and we need to get on with it. And if that occurs, that's what Tom's saying. We would be very much in implementation mode. But there's yeah. something that people have to come out and start explaining to us. What is it, this alternative view that's skewing people making statements? We're going to write this. We just can't. We just find, I just find it incompatible. This contradiction just does not make sense to me. And I can't, I, I can't square the circle anymore. I think the things that um, anybody listening to this that would be that that just can't be defended that wherever you are on the spectrum of these issues that you cannot defend. I think you cannot defend the fact the UK ran zero randomized trials. You can't defend the fact the US ran zero randomized trials. I think what they're really saying is N95s are more plausible to them in their mind. They think so. But the question, the real question is, is that true? And there's reasons to think it might not be true because honestly, if you told me I had to wear an N95, I would cheat more than I would if I had to wear a regular mask because it's even more burdensome to me. And I'm already going to cheat a lot because, uh, you know, I, I'm not, uh, that's one. The third, the, the last thing that I think is absolutely unjustified is, you know, we, there are places in the U.S. that still mask children to this day. I mean, you can go to uh, like after school daycares and music. I mean, to this day, they've already had COVID. They're already low risk. Many of them have had vaccine. Ironically, the vaccine uptake is highest in places that mask the most, but not that the vaccine is doing much for these kids. I don't know that to be true. The studies are just so woefully inadequate. You'll find that out someday when you look deeply at them. Um, so I guess those to me are the unjustified things. Um, here's the I thing I wanted to add. Yes, I'm go ahead. Sorry, that's go child ahead. Abuse. I'm saying that's child abuse. I think that, that really uh, yeah. See, there are some. See, there are some. There are infections where the impact on children is very high, like measles. Yes. So, so you understand then intervening. But it's very clear from the data that coronaviruses in children is a very low risk low risk um, effect impact therefore what you're going to see is any potential harms of a vaccine will outweigh the fact you've not got any benefit so i think with the, it's becoming clear on children but also you've got to ask yourself questions 
And this is the anecdote in me, is that what you do when you come into the world is you come in an immune system that's naive, you get some breast milk that helps you out, and then you build a system that's based on your or your natural immunity acquiring infections. And, and, and I'm a GP, I have this anecdote where I say, look, in a lifetime, you're gonna face about 200 viruses. We know about 30 of them. And Tom said, yeah, but about 40% of in the infections, we've no idea what's going on at any one time. And 30 pathogens with the variants and all of that are floating around at any one time. You have to build this system. And what we know is, if you face any of these infections in childhood, always better than if you face them the first time when you're an adult because right. the sequelae are much more worse because you have the immune system that's there to learn and prime itself so the idea you're trying to prevent this in children to me is a misnomer the other thing that's fundamental about this is is children's rights their fundamental rights of children this idea that they take interventions to prevent infections in somebody else is not what children's rights are about. It always should be in the interest of the child, not in the interest of somebody else. You're giving them an intervention. And mm -hmm. people really need to think hard about that when they're intervening in children. And I'll just point out, and it actually also doesn't benefit other people. <laughs> I point that out too. Okay, Tom? Yeah, it point, doesn't anyhow. Yeah, it doesn't anyhow, right, yeah. yeah. Tom? Um, it, it, the, what what what's really happened in the last few years defies, defies uh, my understanding, um, and I go back to the, the business about everything that we knew about respiratory viruses has been ignored, and we haven't really made uh, any great progress despite all this all this noise, except for one one or two areas. There are one or two areas of good news. But we were talking about children vaccines. This is one of the, the greatest crimes is that the, the most important, the most effective vaccine uh, coverage of measles vaccine has gone down. Right. And we know that when coverage goes down, you get breakthrough epidemic. We know that time and time and time and time and time again. We did a review for WHO looking at uh, the uh, the levels of, uh, of coverage of vaccination during this this madness of 2020 2021, and uh, measles was was way below in some areas, some nations was way below 80 percent, and we know that's breakthrough. So the really important interventions um, were just again thrown out. Now, what has caused all this? A new, a newly identified coronavirus? Well, I mean, you know, um, how many other newly identified or unidentified coronaviruses have we got? We, we've got trillions of them. Right. And by the way, today I've just learned that WHO has isolated the next one on the, on the block. H5N1 is on mm. its influenza. H5N1 is on its way back. So get ready for stockpiling antivirals. Last point, the business about lack of trials. Ah, but we were caught in a, it's an emergency. We didn't have time to do the trials, get protocol, get ethical clearance and so on and so forth. Way back in 2009, uh, well, 2005, after the uh, modelers that scared the world for H5N1 impending bird flu pandemic, um uh, trials were run of uh, a mock-up uh, of vaccines of pre so-called pre-pandemic vaccines and the protocols for these trials 
were ready, the, the production lines were ready, and all it needed was WHO to hit the button and the, 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 the trial started and the rollout started soon after the, the approval, which was accelerated. So this business of uh, we haven't got the time to do a trial simply does not, it does not hang together. It is again a selective memory of what's happened in the last decades. Uh, and I don't accept that as an excuse. There is political will, clearly, not to answer questions on any of these NPIs and any of these interventions in any of these categories. And we have to ask our governors why. You know, I think the three of us agree a lot on these topics. And part of the reason is that we have been in the same business for a long time. Uh, I'm in clinic every week, Carl. You know, we, we are all practicing doctors, but we also have studied evidence-based medicine. What are the unspoken principles that bring us to where we are? One, I think it's the principle that um, in the long arc of medical history, most of the things people thought were plausible actually don't work, just the reality of life. So that's to Carl's point, which is why you start with the null. It's because most of the time the null was right. It actually doesn't, doesn't do much. Uh, the next thing is, in the history of medical literature, we've been misled by retrospective, observational, no-protocol studies. We've been misled by anecdote. We've been misled when we're afraid and uncertain. And repeated randomized control trials have brought us to you know better estimates of causal efficacy. Um, and three, in the history of medicine, when people have said something's a parachute, it's too good to be tested, they're almost always wrong. And not only is it not too good to be tested, sometimes it doesn't even work, you know? Uh, it's not even good at all. Um, and and I think those are sort of, and then finally harms. Harms are always understated, underreported, underappreciated. Um, and then the fifth principle, we take things that might work in very severe populations, and then we just start to give it to everybody. You know, stenting in STEMI works great. Let's just stent everybody. You know, uh, uh, you know, something might work well in a sick person. Let's do it to everybody. Those are sort of our unspoken principles. And these people who wander in the debates, the artificial intelligence researchers, the computer scientists, these advocates, they don't have these five principles because they're not in this business. They haven't been in this business and they're not gonna be in this business. They're gonna move on to you know, Ukraine and nuclear power. You know, they're gonna move on to the next hot topic to keep the, to keep the commentaries going. Thoughts? Yeah, so look, I think yeah, yeah. Um, first is, Tom mentioned about his, he had a good teacher and mentor in, in David Tyrrell. I mean, one of the things that happened to me was 1995, Dave Sackett turned up in Oxford and just changed the whole course of my medical training and how to think about evidence. And it was just impressive. And he wrote a paper called The Arrogance of Preventive Medicine. You should right. put it put it on the list and stick it out yeah. there for readers. It, it basically just says to you there's an arrogance about this. People just believe there's always more effect than you than you want. And it happens in all of this, whether it's supplements, how are we going to look after ourselves in the world? They just always want to push at you, a market employee, that these interventions have much more an effect. And they're overly... Uh, critical, and there you go, the arrogance of prem. They're all the three elements. It's a brilliant paper that you should go for. And I think that's important. And I think what I found is in that period of the 90s, it was more about drugs and looking at that. There have been huge issues in the 80s, whether the cardiac rhythm of suppression trials, but also breakthroughs like aspirin, simple trials, aspirin in MI can have a big difference. And huge, well-done trials and meta-analysis and individual data. And there's a lot of people came to the fore and actually banded together. That's all the development of Cochrane and 
huge impetus to produce an evidence base. I think what's happened in the last 10, 15 years is we've seen a growing commercial viewpoint. Universities now are, are, are beds of industry and farmer import, and it's become you know, difficult for academics and researchers and particularly, particularly people coming through to speak out. And it, there was a piece in The Telegraph this week, which I just I wanted to share with you what he said. Some vocal academics entrenched in scientific politics have vociferously defended their own position for the last three years, while other scientists calling for more research have often been met with criticism. Now, the key about EBM is evidence. We'll get there in the end, how many people get harmed on the way. But what we do need now is more people to be vocal about the points we're making. We need to get that band back together. That collaboration dissipated in Cochrane in 2013. It was a disaster for Cochrane that the collaborative bit disappeared. And so we haven't got enough people talking to each other. What we're doing now, trying to understand some of the important issues. If we can change, it needs more people to join in this view to say, but particularly MPIs, we need a different direction pushing forward. How are we going to go about that? Tom, you wanted to say something? I want to follow up on this. I'd just, uh, just like to, to talk about the precautionary principle, first right. of all, and and then the parachute analogy. Let's start with that. Parachute analogy doesn't work with respiratory viruses. Um, you, you open the, uh, the door to an aircraft and you jump out and you've got a linear cause and effect. Um, uh, you get splattered on, on, the, on, on the ground. Uh, respiratory viruses, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. It, transmission is very difficult. We've been looking at transmission for SARS-CoV-2 for the last for the last three years. It's very difficult to understand. It's possibly situational and very changeable. It's not one to one. In fact, there is there are, there is overwhelming empirical proof in so-called challenge studies where volunteers are in, in inhaled or injected or squirted with. Uh, a lie a rep, replicant uh, virus and only six percent seven percent ten percent in killingly's experiment uh, on sars-cov-2 53 percent got infected. well what happened to the others it's so transmission even experimental transmission is not one-to-one -one. the second point i'd like to make is the uh, massacre of the uh, of the precautionary principle the precautionary principle says, if you do not have any idea of the costs and benefits of risks and, and harms and potential benefits of what you're about to do, sit on your hands until you do. And that is precisely what hasn't happened. Completely the opposite. They said, oh, well, let's just do this just in case. Just in case it makes a difference. It makes a difference to what? We do not understand viral circulation. We don't understand what, as I said, whether it's activation, whether it's transmission, whether it's both, or whether it's something else, it's an act of God, we don't understand it. So applying precautionary principle means that we need to understand, study, and be scholars before we make any global decisions like have been made in the last three years. I guess the question I want to follow up with you both about on this topic, and I completely agree, that a precautionary principle was misused. And uh, it also doesn't mean don't study. You know, I, I, never knew it, I never knew it meant like even, even the people who think we ought to have done it 
do it in one place, but study it over here. But they don't want to do not, they want to, they just they want to block the studying, which I think is ludicrous. But the question I want to ask you both is um, we're not the only people who think like us. I would estimate there's probably in the thousands, you know, 10 to the, you know, the thousands of doctors who think like us, who have the background experience. Um, maybe hundreds are professors or people who have a position that they're not going to get fired if they spoke out. Um, but yet they were mostly silent. And I guess I'm curious what you think as to, you know, you, Carl makes this great call, which is now the time to speak up. I think it is in the sense the temperature is down. It's a lot cooler now than it was a year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, you're going to get a lot less um, uh, fodder. Um, so they should speak up now. They shouldn't be afraid. But I guess I'm curious about the psychology because the psychology, you talk about those eight weeks, part of what happened in those eight weeks where all these people were silent. The people who wanted more randomized trials were mostly silent. The people who see what we're saying is correct are mostly silent. Um, why do you think they were silent? Um, maybe we'll start with Carl and then go to Tom. And why are they still silent? I think most of them are. So I think there are two two areas. One is the healthcare setting. There are pressures now in the healthcare setting. We've had this with people we were working with. They were giving us data. They were basically told you'd lose your job if you carry on doing this. Uh, I had information from paramedics, people talking to me about in the care home settings, what they were saying. I said, would you go on the record? They go, I'll lose my job. So there's something in healthcare that goes wrong with the ability to speak out. And there has to be some change there because when you are a whistleblower, your job is to improve the service. You're basically saying there's something going wrong. I need to speak about it. But we've got a divorce from management over here. You basically don't really understand what doctors are doing. And then doctors here going, look, they're all suppressing us, not letting us speak out. So that fundamentally has to change because it will improve healthcare for the better. The second aspect is academia is increasingly becoming a responsibility of industry. Public funding, even in this country, is going down. More than half of the income comes from industry. And that creates huge issues and contentions and problems. People like me and Tom have faced huge complaints, lots of threats. It's been a complete. We've even had an MP set up a website to basically try and censor us. And we have had in the lockdown files, it's become clear, and from people like Matt Hancock, health secretary book, that his mission was to shut people down who disagreed with them. So our politicians actively pursue individuals who disagree with policy. You've got all the fact checkers thrown in there, who basically the people just out of degrees who are basically saying, your job is to agree with the government. So the pressures are huge, but those pressures only dissipate if, a small number of people become a large number of people who say, we do want to rail against this. And the key here is freedom of speech. I was brought up, my dad said, look, the most important thing is you've got something to say, say it. That's what a democracy is about. Academic freedom. What's academic freedom about? And I've got people now saying to me, what is the purpose of universities if they don't have people who speak out? against the status quo. Why are we funding you? What's the purpose? What are you teaching your people about critical thinking? Because I came here as an undergraduate. That was the day one, was to think critically, ask questions about everything you do. Now, 25 years later, that sort of being said, mm, it's not helpful in the message here. Actually, it's undermining our potential income structure. Couldn't you please go and sit in the corner and be quiet? So we need people to speak out and start saying, what's the purpose of universities anymore? What's critical thinking about? Tom? 
I don't have an answer. I think it's just a, a combination of fear, um, people get intimidated, um, uh, bullying, um, and uh, the fact that they they will not have their funding renewed if they say certain things. But I, I, I don't know why some of the great gurus of EVM uh, have been quiet. In fact, some of them have been instrumental in doing some of the worst systematic reviews with some of the worst material uh, that I have ever seen, scandalous stuff, uh, based on assumptions. Um, thinking specifically about a review that looked at distancing, uh, two meters and so on. Uh, absolutely, absolute scandals. Um, I don't have an answer, I'm sorry. Um, all I can say is that uh, uh, it, it has not been easy, uh, but we are not victims, or I'm not a victim, I don't pretend to be a victim. But um, if they think they can shut up, I, I, I will ever shut up. What's interesting about the pandemic response, though, is the normal rules of medicine and decision-making seem to go out the window. Mm -hmm. And somehow what we do then is bring in a load of mathematicians, a load of non-clinical people who have certainty about what to do. They're very clear. They can reduce numbers of deaths from half a million to 20,000 with two or three key interventions. And, And the whole of medicine and everything we've been taught looks at that and goes, wow, that's really uncertain. The problem is expressing uncertainty in a political world is that difficult then to make decisions. So why has everybody sort of removed themselves when it comes to a pandemic and says, oh, the normal rules don't apply anymore. We'll just hand it over to mathematicians, psychologists, behavioral people, and they have all the answers. They are very certain. And why, when I listen to them, the way they speak is they're definite about what's going to happen. So if you looked at it, when we introduced maths in July 2020, if you look at the effect sizes from the reviews Tom saying, actually, if they'd have been shown to work by the effect sizes, within four weeks, the pandemic would have disappeared. <laughs> right, all right. Gone into our life. right. And I would be fantastic. I'd be like, this is wonderful. You have, why didn't you just say in four weeks, this is what should happen? 80% reduction. You basically can see 80% reduction would get you down to so few cases. You just were like, fine, we can carry on. But none of that happened. But the certainty with which it was expressed never got challenged until a few politicians had to come around the side and start going, hold on a minute, what is really going on here? And start asking questions. Now, interestingly, we have a good experiment for this and a good control group because you see what happens when people don't ask questions. That's what happens in China. You will get there in the end. The question is, how many, how long do you want to take? And do you want to shorten the duration of lockdowns and restrictions? Or do you want to let it just evolve to the people and everybody goes, oh, my gosh, we can see what's happening from an evidence base. But the world would look very odd if it didn't have people who ask questions, if it didn't have dissenters and those who thought critically. And you'd end up like China three years in, suddenly then having to go, mm, maybe we'll do something different. It took, would have took three years for restrictions to come up. I agree with you both so much, and um, a couple of the points, you know, <laughs> Carl's point. <laughs> Carl's point about the university. I just saw a, a report that said the universities in America with the most intellectual property licensed to pharma and University of Pennsylvania. Okay, so this is what they pride themselves on. 
They pride themselves on which of the research we want to fund, the research we can license to Novartis so they can make CAR-T so we get our big kickback of 400 mil, you know, for our fund our university. The people running the universities are no longer what I consider real academics. They're business people who may have dabbled in academics once upon a time. And because they're so focused on in the U.S. at least, where every, every university is buying all the adjacent hospitals to increase clinical revenue. Um, money, the love of money rather than the love of knowledge, the uh, lack of controversy. I would just point out that I'm in the Department of Epidemiology, probably one of the best in this country. I, don't th I can't think of a single debate we've ever had about masking. We never even talk about it in, in terms of we've never had a, a single seminar where two people with different points of view articulated their points of view. One point of view, the point of view that we have expressed, is banned from the seminar, effectively. Um, it's not officially banned, but it's implicitly banned. You just can't express that view. We're not, just not going to have that debate. So we closed the schools in this city for 18 months for children. We closed it for 18 months for poor minority children. And zero debates at the university. Zero. We never discussed it. We never discussed the forced masking of children. We never discussed, should we get seven boosters? We just keep getting boosters every, and I have to get another booster, another booster. The next one's the charm. Uh, obviously, the retrospective observational data shows that the granting the booster was the right choice, um, but we're not doing randomized trials anymore like we ought to. Uh, so to me, I think there is a rot, and that's the academic rot. And then the last thing I'll say, and then I'll give it to you, Tom, is that, uh, you know, my father was similar to Carl's father about what it means to be in a democracy and you should speak what you, I also think, Life is short, and if you don't say what you think, one day you'll be dead with all these great thoughts that you never told any, you know, or, you know, you wouldn't tell anyone. And then I also think that we have a fear in academics. I'm like, what are you so afraid of? Okay, worst case scenario, you lose your job. You're not going to go hungry. I mean, you, you're somebody who's smart. You got a doctorate. You'll find something. To, and also, it'll be a big, they're not going to do it because it will, it will draw so much attention to it and create a huge, you know, division in, in academics to push out somebody who's outspoken on these issues. Are you afraid of losing the grant? Lose the grant. I mean, you know, it's not that, you know. And the last thing I'll say is I know people, they study early childhood intervention. Their whole career focus is how do we help poor minority kids in America in those first few years, pre-K, K, one, two, three. They didn't say a word when the school was closed for 18 months. They didn't say a word. I was like, your whole life's goal this was your moment. This was the moment. You could have done more good in this one moment than you'll ever do in your whole 25, 30-year career because so much damage was done in one moment in time and you didn't say anything? Why are you even in this game? It's like a basketball player doesn't want to play the fourth quarter. Why are you even playing? Um, Tom. Yeah, well, uh, I'd be quite happy to have a debate and um, a public debate and I'd be quite happy to speak in favor of uh, physical interventions and uh, to explain to people why I personally don't think that masking has had a fair um, trial, uh, a fair clinical trial. There's many, many reasons why, why maybe there that, that doesn't appear to be any evidence that uh, the mask work. And I'd be quite happy to explain to people why I think that. Um, but as you say, debates will never happen. So if you have a university where there is no debates, um, you are like Galileo, who had to refuse his principles under the Inquisition. And he was given, uh, instead of being tortured and, and burnt to death, he was given house arrest for the rest of his life. 
Um, it really is, I think we've gone back four, 500 years. And from an EBM point of view, I reckon about 50 years. Um, like uh, in the days before clinical trials had to be done to register drugs, or biologics. And we are quite happy to, to now uh, to randomize control trials and no, 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 they give the wrong answer. Uh, uh, Non-randomized studies, no, they're just not good enough. So maybe what are we going to do? Uh, uh, animal uh, animal models, or <laughs> just a few, three or four people in a laboratory with mechanistic studies and so on. So we've gone back 50, 40 years. We've rolled the frontiers back, and where these guys have gone, I have no idea. They're hiding in a bunker, probably. God knows. Carl. <laughs> So, look, um, we've talked about MPIs and math. Look, we need to get back to get together, Vinny, because we could have a whole show about test and trace and how to use yeah. PCR testing. So I think we need to come back together because we've got lots to say on that. But I also want to come to that. I do a lot of talks for mid-career people in research and academia who are a bit in the doldrums, <laughs> looking at that career pathway to professor. And going, I've got to get the money in the next trial. And I go to them, look, you want to reinvigorate your career. Start talking to the people that matter. Go directly to the public. Go directly to the politicians. Write down what you're going to do. Do some weird things like some podcasts. Start to think about your messages and get them out there. And when you do that, you'll start to think more clearly about what you want to say and how you want to say it. You have to look more, more in more detail at the research because if you're going to write it down, it's going to be a permanent record. So we can all talk about it in the corridors. And I think what's happening is a lot of people are in the background. But if actually they got out there and said, I'm going to start talking to the people that matter, then they start to have to answer and address some of these issues. Why did we not do the trials? Why did we spend 37 billion on testing trace in the UK when it was very clear it wasn't going to work right at the outset? Why did we use a test? in that is a high quality test in such an imperfect way that actually makes no sense in terms of clinical medicine all of these issues have to be debated but we need people to start putting their views out and writing them out and stop going to the journals which are actually going down the drain and go direct to the public which is where it's at thank you both for doing this i couldn't agree more i think it's quite inspirational i think uh there are right answers here and there are wrong and there are less there are wrong answers and I think you two gentlemen have really done good in keeping the flame of evidence-based medicine alive. I think it will reignite. I think there will be debate someday in the next 5 years when people calm down a little bit and when the people who are a little timid come back out as Carl says and then I think we might have some real opportunity to make progress going forward and uh, I thank you both for for doing this great work. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome, Vanessa.